You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's episode is decision-making and the will of God. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Decision-making and the will of God. I bring you greetings from Atlanta. It's early winter, and our family lives in a part of the country where snow is a rarity. But right now, there are six inches, 15 centimeters of snow on the ground. It's beautiful. It's also paralyzed uh, the roads. There's hardly any traffic. The schools are canceled. Commerce has come to a standstill. We assume this is the will of God, don't we? Doesn't God send his rain to fall on the just and the unjust? Is God behind the weather? Well, interesting, when something bad happens, maybe it's an earthquake or tornado, the insurance companies call these things acts of God. Well, and so in some sense, their acts of God and normal, regular rain is not an act of God? What does it mean when we say something is happening according to the will of God? Often we say that in a tone of resignation when things aren't going well. But we all accept that God is sovereign. In other words, nothing happens in this world except by his permission. He may cause things to happen directly or indirectly. He causes them to happen by permitting them to go on. So, what about the bad things? What about the wars, the genocides, the kidnaps, rapes, and murders? Are they the will of God? Well, it, this casts a different light or on the topic, does it not? It sounds funny to say, yes, it's God's will that people be murdered or raped. We don't believe that, and yet clearly... These things have happened by God's permission. And I think we get tangled up very quickly unless we carefully distinguish between different levels of God's will. In the accompanying notes, I give you more scriptures than I will read, and I hope that will be useful to you as we review the lesson. But first we could talk about the sovereign will of God also called his will of decree. God has plans, plans that cannot be thwarted. His providence is tied into this. We trust that he's in control. Also, God has ordained that the world be and function in the way that it does. It's his sovereign will. We can do nothing to change that. But then there's his moral will or his will of desire. This requires obedience, obedience to a command. We are called to obey God, to set our hearts on his will, not on the things that the world values. Now, his sovereign will is carried out by all. We're all part of a drama. His moral will is only carried out by those who decide to obey him. And so sometimes 
Something may be the will of God, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. So clearly, there are at least two levels. Remember when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, and he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus had a choice there. He could have avoided doing the will of God. He could have resisted the moral will of God. Of course, he realized that that would have caused problems because God had a sovereign plan. And there's a third level of will, the will of direction or a specific will. And most often, this is what we're concerned about when we're thinking about what class to sign up for or what man or woman is a possible life mate. What job should I apply for? And we pray for help with decision-making. We should search the scriptures, seek counsel, pray. God will give us wisdom. But how do people look for God's will? How do people make decisions? I'm going to be challenging some ideas that are very cherished cherished in, in Christian thinking. Where do we err? Well, perhaps fundamentally, we just don't have faith. We don't have trust. We try to figure out everything ahead of time. We're preoccupied with the future. Jesus said not to worry in Matthew 6, that we would seek the kingdom and things will work out. God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He'll take care of you and me too. Another passage dealing with the future is at the end of James 4. Really, it's a passage for businessmen, for entrepreneurs, for people who have ambitious schemes to make money. But let me read the end of James 4. And this is the ESV. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, the last verse I read, verse 17, is the one that's most memorized and most familiar. But really, it's best understood in its context, which is the plans we're making over the next couple of years. And I know that For many of us, we only really just think about getting through today, or maybe we think two weeks ahead. If we're very organized, we may have a plan for the year or for the next six months. But with business, often people have a a longer-term plan, and these are people who are trying to decide what to do, where to go, so that they can make money. He reminds them that life is short. It's really nothing in length. It's so short we should say, if the Lord wills. So we, don't, we can resist God's will. We can, do, we can act not in accordance with God's will. And that's why you have to just stop, slow down, and open our eyes. We have so many options, though, don't we, in our day compared to the olden days? We're, we're wondering if we're going to marry or not. If we marry, who are we going to marry? We're in contact with so many people. It's not like the old days where you lived in a village and maybe there were five eligible girls, five eligible men, unless you went 
to another village. Many people never even went to another village. Uh, jobs. We can apply for jobs online. We can go to shopping malls and go door to door. Uh, if we're buying groceries, let's say we're buying milk. Often I'm sent to the supermarket to buy milk. Well, do we want whole milk? Or is it 2% or 1% or skim? Are we buying half and half? What are we buying and what brand and what expiration date? There's so many options. It's not like the old days where you'd get up and go out and milk the cow and there you go. So we have so many options. And I think sometimes that leads to our being paralyzed. Rather than making a decision, we are so afraid to make a wrong decision. I think we also err least I do, when I don't want to take full responsibility for my actions. Have you ever done this? There's something unpleasant. You're not wholehearted. And so you ask a trusted friend, a spiritual mentor, for advice. What does she think? What does he think? And then you think, well, I'll just do what the person said. I find this distasteful. I'm not going to think it through. And if it goes wrong, I'll blame that guy. Really, we can't do that. Others will believe that they've sought the Lord's will and things go badly and then they have a bad attitude towards God. Something in us doesn't want to take responsibility. But if we're willing to take responsibility, I think we'll be far less paralyzed and we'll find the joy in Christ. Let me talk about pagan thinking because most of us bring our thinking with us into the kingdom of God when we become Christians. The truth is much of what's taught even in the church is pagan in its orientation. Now, I better explain what I mean. The essence of paganism is controlling deity. We are trying to uh, get certain concessions or find blessings from God, and we want our way. And on paganism, we think of God as a kind of genie. And if we say the right thing, and we don't get tricked, and we play our cards right, we can get what we want. Today, and even in ancient days, the, the kind of things people would ask for were, of course, prosperity, uh, success in examinations, uh, harm to come to one's enemies, health, and so forth. I remember once I went to a Shinto temple on one of my trips to Japan, and people had hung up their prayer requests uh, little pieces of paper which would be hanging in the wind. And some would say, uh, help me to pass my exams. Others, uh, please let her say yes when I ask her to marry me. Uh, well, we think that if we do this, then somehow the God will be obligated. In the church, some people have the idea that if I pray and fast, then I'll get what I want. Now God has to give it to me. And the more I pray and the more I fast, the more likely I am to get it. And you know, there may be some loose correlation, but I don't believe we can manipulate God. It's backwards. It's paganism. In paganism, there's no connection between morals and religion. Ethics is divorced from worship. What do I mean? In paganism, as long as you go through the right ritual, you perform the right act, give the sacrifice then the God will bless you. You don't have to be a good husband, an honest businessman. You can be whatever you want to be as long as you go through the motions. Well, this is the essence 
of paganism. Another part of paganism, though, is trying to learn the future. We're trying to use tricks to, shall I say, divine, prognosticate the future or the will of the gods by mechanical means. Now, what kind of methods am I talking about? Let me clarify. It's a long list. There's no need to explain them all. Um, They're all in the notes. But one would be, and this is in ancient times, uh, examination of arrows. Arrows would be pulled out of the quiver and thrown on the ground, and the way they landed would indicate the future. We see that actually in Ezekiel 21.21. If you remember the novel by uh, Melville, Moby Dick, Queequeg, pulls out the bones, and he's throwing them. uh, And he casts the bones, and they form a certain pattern, and he sees in this that he is going to die. We get the idea. It's the palm reader. It's a Ouija board. It's a tarot card. It's a fortune cookie. What was very popular in ancient times was examining flights of birds. Birds would fly overhead, and then priests would interpret what that meant. Or um, a body would be opened up, uh, typically an animal body, like a sheep, and the liver would be examined. Hepatoscopy, or the examination of liver, was they thought that liver is where uh, mind and memory and intelligence uh, resided. Uh, they didn't understand about the brain. So they examined the liver to try to find out the future. Then, as now, astrology was very popular. And, of course, the Bible condemns this. And if you're interested in this, by the way, there is a podcast on astrology you might want to listen to. Aiming to learn the future by these mechanical means instead of just trusting God. This is nothing but superstition. Where else do we go wrong? Well, we could know God's will a lot better if we would know our Bibles. But there's random reading. And I used to be part of a religious movement, some of whom, some members of whom used to study their Bibles at random. I mean, if the wind happened to blow their Bible to a certain page, they believed that was the Spirit showing them something. And some people will actually open a window and open the Bible and let the wind determine the page they're going to read. In the absence of wind, they'll turn on an electric fan. And this is just lazy thinking. Now, of course, if you read your Bible at random, you will find good things. There's awesome stuff on every page. But why should we think that God is directing us to a certain passage just because we've gone through some random mechanical process? There's even a school of thought, a method that's called bibliomancy which is asking questions. You ask a question, and then you randomly rifle through the pages of the Bible. And the first verse that your eyes land on, well, that contains the answer. And somehow you need to find it in the words or letters in that verse. This is paganism. Let me tell you one other way we go wrong, and then I want to go specifically through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, One way we go wrong is in having a defective view of God. We think, well, since God has a will, and this is normally referring not to his moral will or his sovereign will, but to that third level, that's the specific will. Since he has a will and he's planned it, I must be meant to discover it. But then how do we know? What would make us think that God means us to understand his ways? Are not his ways inscrutable? Romans 11. Uh, Did God ever tell Job what he was really doing? Think of the book of Job. Oh, 
God did speak, but he never explained his specific will to Job. Another defective uh, piece of theology is thinking that God conceals his plans from us just to make it hard on us, to make it difficult for us to find our way. We forget that God's commands are not burdensome. Matthew 11, 1 John 5, God works with us. The Spirit is a comforter, a counselor, an advocate. John 14, John 15, 1 John 2. But we think that God is somehow working against us, that really he's trying to make it hard, and we play a game of cat and mouse. But if we play our cards right and we're smart, we can figure out what's going to happen. That's not right. And one other one is thinking that God's word is not meant to be studied diligently, but only to be used as a sanctified Ouija board. And so we remain in biblical illiteracy, using the Bible as it was never meant to be used. Maybe we fall into that bibliomancy, just kind of flipping through randomly and and expecting that God will speak to us. And there's no strategy to it. We must be careful. We're exhorted in the pages of both Testaments to be ever so careful in approaching and in following God's word. What are some specific things we can learn from the Old Testament? And then I want to talk about the New Testament. Of course, some things are forbidden. Uh, consulting false gods. Uh, divination, you know, like examining the, the liver of a, a sheep, uh, Deuteronomy 18. This is absolutely forbidden. But there were many ways in the Old Testament that the Lord did speak to his people. Through prophets, psalmists, through the historians who wrote the narrative parts of the Old Testament, through angels, sometimes, as long as they didn't contradict the word of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord even spoke directly as he spoke to Moses at Sinai, Exodus 20. Um, Visions and dreams, which were the normal way that the Lord spoke to prophets, Numbers 12. Urim and Thummim, which were uh, attached to the breastplate uh, on the priest's ephod. It was a garment he wore. And this would be used to determine the will of the Lord. Also, lots could be drawn. It was a legitimate means of divining God's will, but permitted to the priest. The truth is, the Lord's... Certainly, God spoke through many means, from burning bushes to talking donkeys to signs and dreams. And yet we recognize that he no longer does so. None of us expects to walk out of our home in the morning and to see one of our bushes on fire or to have our dog start talking to us. We don't expect to be mountain climbing and hear the voice of the Lord out of a storm, out of a cloud. What does still apply today from the Old Testament? And I'll, I'll just direct you to the notes. The importance of, of uh, having common sense. That's emphasized often, as well as the importance of seeking wisdom, uh, not only in God's Word, but also from others. Scripture, uh, with its warnings, with its encouragements, the Old Testament Scripture is still valid today. Even though we don't have to obey the Old Testament law, it is still God's Word for us, and there's much to learn. But we must be cautious. Um, Too often, Christians will read the Old Testament indiscriminately, Uh, Look, one of the the most common uh, means of finding out God's will uh, that I've heard of, and I was first exposed to it when I was in the charismatic movement, was what's called fleecing. You may recall when Gideon, who was a man weak in faith, though 
he shouldn't have been. Uh, when Gideon was told to, uh, to be a leader, to rise up and do great things, he doubted God. And in Judges 6, he says, I'm going to put a fleece on the ground tonight, and when it gets wet, when the ground gets uh, covered with dew, let the fleece be dry. At least I think I'm getting the order right. And it was. And the next night he said, please don't be angry. I want to ask the opposite way this time. You know, okay, let the fleece be wet. Let the ground be dry. I think I've got that right. So people say, I'm putting out a fleece. It might be, well, I'll bring up a certain subject, and if someone says this word, then I'll know God wants me to go here or there. And of course, God could work through that, but you don't really know. Uh, my most common fleece, although never, I never called it that, was the traffic light. And I would pray, and if the light were green, I took that as a go-ahead signal from the Lord. If it was red, then that was no. Yellow meant try again, or I guess proceed cautiously. But honestly, I'm no different to you. If I really didn't want to do it and the light was green, I would talk myself out of it. I'd say, uh, I, maybe I didn't drive the right way, or... Uh, maybe it's a fluke. I remember one time, there's something I knew I should do. I didn't want to. And I drove through 10 intersections, 10 green lights, and I still concluded, oh, I'm not going to do this anyway. But fleecing, where is that commended? People say, yes, well, Gideon was a great man of faith. Well, true, he became a man of faith. And he is commended in the Bible. But he was showing weak faith at that time. When the prophet Isaiah was told, ask for a sign, he said, no, Isaiah 7, I will not put the Lord to the test. So a fleecing is not something ever commended in the Bible. Uh, counterfeiting messages from God was very common. In Jeremiah 23, uh, the Lord castigates the false prophets. He really lambastes them. He lets them know what he thinks of their artificial, man-made, synthetic, uh, pseudo-spiritual religion. People who say, the Lord told me this. Well, how do you know the Lord told you that? Maybe you had a strong sense. And I even hear this. Sometimes I hear brothers more than sisters in the church say, well, look, God has put this on my heart. And so here's what I want to do, or here's what we're going to do. But I think that is actually fairly heavy handed. I mean, if the Lord puts something on his heart, then obviously there's no discussion. <laughs> because you'd be resisting God's spirit if you questioned it. Perhaps the Lord put something on Nehemiah's heart. But how do we know that the Lord put something on our heart as opposed to our putting something on our own hearts? You know, I could say, the Lord put it on my heart. I would like to have a cup of coffee. My caffeine levels have fallen. And is that the Lord putting on your heart? So why spiritualize things? Why not just say, I have an idea? Or I've been praying and I have an idea. See what you think. It's so easy to read too much into circumstances. You know, your dog sneezes. And you wonder, now, what does that mean? Is there a spiritual meaning in there? You know, probably not. But he was facing east. Isn't Christ going to come back from the east? Zechariah 14. See, people read way too much into circumstances. I'd like to give you a few examples of this. In Numbers 20, which is one I've used very often in my teaching, Moses strikes the rock with his staff in direct disobedience to God. In a moment of emotion, he loses his cool. He strikes the rock. 
Now, you would think that the water would not come out of the rock because he disobeyed. Numbers 20 is similar to, though not the same, as an earlier instance where he was told to strike a rock in Exodus 17. But in Numbers 20, he was told to speak to the rock. He disobeys God. The punishment is he's going to die on the other side of the Jordan. He's not going to see the promised land. But the blessing still comes. God still blesses the people. Water still comes out, even though he sinned. It's very easy for us to say, well, I did this, and good came from it, so it must have been of God. I would just ask, what do you mean of God? If something's from the Lord, does that mean that it's good? I mean, couldn't we say that the crucifixion was from God? It was certainly in accordance with his divine plan, with his destiny for us, providing a means for our salvation. That doesn't mean it was right. The fact that the crucifixion was part of God's plan does not exonerate Pontius Pilate or Judas. They're just as guilty as they they were before. In Judges 14.4, the immature Samson says, Get this woman for me. She's the one. And he's, he's marrying outside the faith, something that, that was clearly ruled against. This went against God's will. It, it always does. We're supposed to marry in the faith. And his parents, it says in Judges 14, did not understand that this was from the Lord because basically through uh, Samson's uh, connection with the Philistines, God would, he would give victory to Israel. And when you read the stories in Judges, you'll see exactly how that worked. It was from the Lord because it was from the Lord in the sense that good for Israel came from it. But it was not from the Lord if you mean his moral will. So that was from the Lord level one, his sovereign will, but not level two, his moral will. And a couple more examples. In 1 Samuel, Saul is trying to kill David. In chapter 24, the king enters the cave. David could have taken his life. In chapter 26, uh, they sneak into the camp while Saul's sleeping and take his spear and his water jug. Now, David's counselors, his friends said, Let's, this is ridiculous. Let's do the expedient thing. Let's dispatch this man. David could have stabbed Saul in the cave. Saul could have been pinned to the ground with a spear when he was sleeping two chapters later. But David realizes there's a higher principle. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do this. It actually looked like the Lord was opening a door. It looked very much like the Lord was uh, opening a door, but just because something's possible doesn't mean it's God's will. We have to be very careful when we talk about the open door. We've got to be very careful. And one other perspective I want to share from the Old Testament, it comes from Numbers 10. You can look at it later on. The Lord guided his people through the pillar, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire at night. I don't think the pillar was there all the time, just when they needed to move. But though the Lord led them that way, still they needed more direction. And in this chapter... Moses is asking a man named Hobab to come with them and to be a kind of guide or scout because Hobab knew the land. He knew the terrain, the places that were advantageous for camping. He probably knew where they would find water and so forth. 
Now, and he persuades Hobab to come with them. You might say, was that a lack of faith? Isn't the Lord showing them exactly where to camp? Well, apparently the pillar is not leading them exactly where they need to be because otherwise there wouldn't be a need for the human element, for human counsel. And I think that's the way it is in my life. The Lord leads me in general directions to take steps of faith. Uh, I've had... uh, had a number of moves in my life. I've had a number of jobs. I've had a a lot of different relationships with different people all over the world. And life is complicated. Just think how many decisions we make in a typical day. Dozens, scores, maybe even hundreds. And you multiply that by the number of days in a year. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of decisions that we make Some people think that God cares about every single decision and is, in fact, involved in every decision. He cares what color socks you put on in the morning. He cares about every hair on your head. In other words, taking Matthew 10 quite literally, the Lord does care about us, but does he micromanage us? Moses asked Hobab to come to help them to see exactly how to camp, where to camp, how to set things up. But the Lord gives them the general direction. And I found that often if I'm going to be my best, I need help in a very specific way from friends. I need counsel. It doesn't always come from talking to the brothers or the elders in the church. Sometimes I get the idea from a book. Sometimes I get the idea from someone who wrote it centuries ago. He's now dead. We get input We want wisdom. We're to do everything we can to get wisdom. So just because you're led by God doesn't mean that you don't need people. It's really quite a mark of pride to think that, well, God will lead me. I don't need any help from others. Just as it's neither spiritual to say, well, you know, I'm too scared to let God you know, to think that way in faith, I'll I'll just do what my friends suggest or do what my leaders tell me. No. So the Old Testament tells us a lot about uh, God's will and and how to make decisions. Uh, There's so much there. In the New Testament, the Lord communicated with his people in ways similar to Old Testament times through prophets and angels. The Macedonian call is is worthy of comment. In Acts 16, Paul is considering continuing uh, the evangelization of Asia Uh, Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And he changes his plans when he has a dream and he sees the man of Macedonia waving his hand saying, come over here. And so they cross into Macedonia. They cross to Europe and they begin the work in Thessalonica and then he goes to Berea and eventually he leaves Macedonia and goes south to Athens. You say, yeah, well, that's it. It was a clear sign from God. Well, apparently it was clear. Well, that's what I want. I want to be like the Christians in Acts. I want to, uh, uh, I'll go by my dreams, and I want angels to direct me, and, and I want to hear the Macedonian call. Well, you may hear the Macedonian call today in a spiritual way, but not even Paul heard the Macedonian call more than once. All the places he went in Acts, uh, Italy and, and Cyprus and all around Syria, all the different places, as far as we know, he was never directed by Dreams of a man waving his hand. That only happened once. Philip was directed to the desert road by an angel in Acts 8. 
But are we to think, therefore, that Christians were always directed in their evangelism by this means? I don't think so. They were actually sent out against their will, nearly, in evangelism, according to Acts eleven nineteen and Acts 8, 4. So just because it happened in Acts doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to happen now. These means of divine revelation were extraordinary. I don't even know how many times it happened. But they weren't the norm. You also notice that the men and women who benefited from these divine messages were not seeking them. They weren't trying to work themselves up into a frenzy, get all in a froth so they could find God's will. They weren't afraid they had missed it. They were careful. They were prayerful. They trusted the Lord. But we are no longer in the apostolic foundational age. I don't believe there are apostles today or prophets, both of whom constitute the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. And so it's not the same as the book of Acts. It doesn't mean that there isn't a tremendous amount to learn. But these extraordinary sensational means of the Lord's guidance and revelation are neither the norm nor are they to be sought by us. The faith has been once and all once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. And extraordinary things happen to confirm the faith. Uh, Acts 14.3, Mark 16.20, you can look at other passages, Hebrews 2.4. But we're no longer in the apostolic age. But what still does apply? Well, like the early church, the Old Testament is the Bible. That was their Bible. It's a, a majority of our Bible too, 2 Timothy 3. Uh, we should still devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, as they did, Acts 2.42. But let us look at Hebrews 1. This is a passage that I think really puts a lot together for us. Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Now, surely in the Old Testament, in the past, God did speak in many ways. In many ways. He spoke by the prophets. He spoke in all the ways we've talked about. How does he speak to us now? The Hebrew writer says it's different now. Now he speaks to us by his son. Okay, hold that thought. When we go to Hebrews 3 we see that one of the main Old Testament texts that's expounded in Hebrews, Psalm 95, is quoted. But look at the lead-in to the quote, Hebrews 3.7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I'm just reading a small part of it. That's a quote from Psalm 95. He's quoting from Psalm 95, which was a thousand years earlier, and he says, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. The writer fully considered that the Spirit was speaking to the people in that ancient text. Uh, Hebrews 3.15 and 4.7 and 4.12 all say the same thing. And really that's what it means in 4.12, that the Word of God is living and active. And just as the Old Testament 
was living and active to them and can be to us so with the New Testament. So what does this mean? Putting it all together, God speaks by his Son through the Spirit working in the Scriptures. This is the way we can be confident that the Lord is speaking to us. He'll speak to us by the Spirit, but not just in some uh, quaint feeling. He speaks to us in the principles of the Word. He speaks to us in the Scriptures, and that's how he's revealed himself through his Son, because the Scriptures point to his Son. The Old Testament centers on the figure of the Messiah to come. The New Testament centers on Jesus Christ. Isn't that reasonable? Doesn't that make sense? And yet, so many believers I've met have fallen into pseudo-Christian means of trying to ascertain God's will. They'll read Hebrews 3, uh, Psalms 3.5, Proverbs 3.5. It says, trust in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Don't lead on your understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And they'll say, well, if I trust God, then, uh, you know, whatever happens, that's from God and the door opens up. And the problem is the path is not the path of least resistance. In fact, normally in Proverbs, the path is a moral path. Being led by the Spirit in Scripture means being led in paths of righteousness, not being led mysteriously uh, to make all the right decisions, well, to make the right moral decisions. This is expressed in the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 143. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We need to be on the up and up. We need to be level. We need to be uh, sticking to the narrow road, not veering to the left or the right, not stumbling. And that's the path. It's the moral path. We're all worried about, should I move and what city should it be and who should come with me and uh, should I buy a new car, (laughs) whatever bothers you. These decisions will take care of themselves when we're on the narrow road. We'll know what to do. But the path in Scripture is the moral path. I read a book two years ago where the author said that the primary way God speaks to his people is in the still, small voice. And he was referring to when God spoke to Elijah. You know, the storm broke apart the rocks. Elijah was up on the mountain. He was afraid Well, he was just depressed is what he was. But God didn't speak in the earthquake or the fire or the storm. He spoke in a still, small voice. Well, and this guy said, if you'll just be at peace and you listen, you'll know God will speak to you. I'm sure it wouldn't hurt me at all to slow down a bit and be at peace and be more discerning of what God wants me to do. But does God speak to me in a voice, a still, small voice, just because he did to the prophet Elijah? Hmm. I read a book uh, 30 years ago that said that, that if you're a spiritual person, you will instantly get a yes or no answer to any question you put to God. Just ask God, and in your spirit, you will know instantly, yes or no, what God's will is. You know, that actually goes against my experience. My experience is the longer I'm a Christian, the more the Lord lets me flounder around. But, well, I know generally what he wants me to do. But the more he makes me navigate ambiguity, and often there's more than one right 
choice, and I've got to decide, and sometimes it seems there's no ideal choice, and I've got to choose the lesser of two or three evils, and God doesn't tell us. I think this makes sense, because good parents intervene in their children's lives less and less as the children get older. Hopefully, you're not still dressing your 15-year-old or brushing the teeth of your 20-year-old child. So, That makes sense of my experience. In a way, the Lord intervenes less and less in my life because he wants me to make the decisions and to be mature. Another pseudo-Christian way that some imagine they find God's will is just following what they call promptings. They'll say the Spirit uh, nudges them or they're prompted to do this or they're led here or they, they have this feeling or intuition. You know, I don't know about that. I don't think it's impossible that, that, that God would give us a nudge. But let, let's say you're in a public place and you're meeting someone, you're a few minutes early, someone wanders up near you, and you just get a feeling, you know, I should talk to that guy. I should share my faith. Now, is that a nudge from the Holy Spirit? It could be. I don't know, I don't know how you would prove that, but it could be. I'm not against it. I think it's great to talk to that guy. But isn't there another way to look at this? That if you trained yourself in God's word and you really believe the gospel, the love of God in your heart impels you to do something. Christ's love compels us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. So we don't require necessarily a separate action of the Holy Spirit directing you. It is the Spirit. But it's because your heart is open to the things of God. So you feel something. And and yes, we we need to feel something. It's not a dead religion. But this doesn't mean that God's giving you personal directions. You have a hotline to God. We feel things because the, the gospel message is true and it works in the world that we live in. Leading of the Spirit in the Bible is primarily moral, as I've mentioned. The two main passages in the New Testament that talk about being led by the Spirit are in Galatians 5 and Romans 8. Read them both in context carefully. You'll see that they have nothing to do with decision-making. They're all about being virtuous, following the way of virtue, not vice, following the spirit, not the flesh. Some will say, well, what you need to do is pray about the decision. If you feel at peace, then you do it. And they'll read, they'll quote Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But that passage... You have to look at the context. It's talking about peace in the church. It's talking about getting on with one another and being humble and forgiving one another. That kind of peace. Nowhere is Colossians 3 meant to tell us that we pray, and then if we feel at peace, then we do it. And if we feel anxious, we don't. Now, of course, there's some truth that if you feel bad, if you feel funny about a decision, maybe you shouldn't make it. But that's because we're supposed to think things through and own our decisions. But Colossians 3.15 is not a passage about decision-making in the will of God. Others will say, well, James 1.5 says pray for wisdom. So I say a prayer, and then whatever comes into my head, that's the right thing, and that's what I'm going to say. Of course, Proverbs says the fool you know, speaks whatever comes into his head. Some Christians cast, draw lots. They say, well, in Acts 1, they they drew lots to determine who would replace Judas. And so I I know some Christians who do it regularly. 
But this fails to distinguish the two covenants. Drawing lots was an accepted means of discerning God's will in the Old Testament. But when does the Old Testament stop? Acts 1, in a way, is the final chapter of the Old Testament. Because the New Covenant is not inaugurated until Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. I read a book this year. I've read a lot of books, yes. And the guy said that the main way God will talk to you is in your dreams. And that we all have the gift of prophecy. And I thought this was very interesting. I thought, well, what if he's right? What if I'm missing something? I mean, I, I, do, I don't just rule these things out completely. I thought about it for a few weeks. God speaks to us in our dreams? Well, I, I'm a guy who has dreams every night that he remembers. I mean, every day I get up, I have these dreams. Often they simply reflect the anxieties I feel or the decisions I've got to make or I dream about the people that I'm close to. But dreams are a very subjective way to try to discern the will of God. I would say rather when we're struggling, when we're torn about what to do, we dream. And sometimes in thinking about our dreams, we're able to clarify our own thinking. And that may help us to make a good decision. But to say that God is telling us what to do in our dreams, I I just don't buy that. We are not prophets. When God spoke to his prophets in the Old Testament, he did it by dreams, Numbers 12. They were a special class of people. And then there's some Christians who have totally bought into New Age teaching. This idea that, you know, the life force, that the energy goes through me and you can feel other people's auras and we channel. And I was teaching in one country last year and someone asked about uh, the secret, you know, Rhonda Burns' idea that, that we are God And if we realize that we are all divine, then the universe will go our way and we'll get what we want. You might want to listen to the podcast or read the article I did on that topic. But New Age teaching has even crept into the church of God. Well, I'd like to conclude in Romans 12. I know this is quite a substantial podcast, and uh, I didn't know how to make it any shorter. I considered making it two lessons. I think it's better just to do it all at once. Let's read Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we going to discern the will of God, according to Paul, when we present ourselves as living sacrifices, when we resist the world, when we're renewed in our minds, when we're becoming less and less like our neighbors and more and more like Jesus Christ, when we're sacrificing and living a holy life? Listen to the podcast on holiness. When we're changing and truly being set apart, then we can know what God's will is, what pleases God. God speaks to us primarily in his word. Also, through events, people, conscience, nature, experience, there's no reason he couldn't reveal his will to us by extraordinary means. I mean, God could use miracles today. He's God, right? But we must be careful when we're trying to discern the true voice of God. For we are surrounded by many voices. The world, worldly people, Satan, 
false religious ideas, even our own voice. We've got to trust his sovereign will, obey his moral will, focus least on the specific will, though we should seek his wisdom there too. Choose spiritually and take responsibility for decisions. I think Romans 12 really puts it best. If we must have a formula for Christian decision-making, here here it would be. Step one, search the scriptures. Step two, seek godly counsel. Step three, pray. Step four, decide. And step five, stand by our decision. We're responsible for that. Trust God and he will act. I hope this has been helpful to you as we've examined decision-making and the will of God. Let's continue to search the scriptures, to pray, and to pray for God to lead us in paths of righteousness so that we can live the life he's called us to live, a life that's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.